0: This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark.
1: Since the arrival of the capital M, Modern world, beginning in the mid 17th century, one of the persistent points of friction between Orthodox Christians and modernity has been the Christian doctrine that Jesus is the only way to heaven and to eternal life. This is the teaching of God's Word, of course, and it has been the confession of Christians since the first apostle was martyred for refusing to be a polytheist. So, in that sense, there's nothing new. Understand, dear listener, that this is just what the pagan Romans demanded of us. They didn't require us to believe polytheism, but they required us to articulate or confess polytheism, namely, that Caesar is Lord and implicitly, that there is more than one way to God. Nothing infuriated the pagans more than our insistence that Jesus alone is the Savior and Lord. And that's what got some of our brothers and sisters put to death. The martyrs refused to say that Caesar is Lord. They refused to pour out a drink offering to the pagan gods. They refused to curse Christ, and they paid for their fidelity with their earthly lives. Dr. Michael McClymond is on campus today to talk to our students about the history of the doctrine of universalism, the notion that everyone shall go to heaven. In 2018, he published a massive two-volume study, which has attracted the attention of leading universalists. Dr. McClymond is professor of modern Christianity in St. Louis University, where a few of our graduates have gone on to pursue their doctoral studies. Hi, Michael, and welcome to Office Hours. Good to be with you. Well, it is exciting to have you on campus. I intended to hear you speak, but circumstances prevented me. But I am aware of your new two-volume work, The Devil's Redemption, A New History and Interpretation of Christian Universalism. It's published by Baker, and it's just out, and it's generating a lot of discussion. I've seen some of that discussion online. I have not read it yet, so it's on my list of things to do, maybe even over the holiday. First of all... To ask the most basic question, why did you write this work? And then we'll get to why it's so controversial.
2: Well, my uh, work on universalism got underway really around 2011, 2012. So this was a multi year project for me. And there were various things. I'd been exposed to the idea of universal salvation all the way back in college when I was at Northwestern University. And the religious studies professor was saying, well, this is what the Apostle Paul taught. And I was a Greek student, was doing my beginning Greek, and I said, my thought at the time is, it's fine. You can certainly believe that, but if you want to tell me that this is what Paul teaches in you know the New Testament, then I need an argument for that. So that was the first stage, and when I was at Yale Divinity School, I did a comparative paper on Origen and Bart, of course, two key figures in the debate over universalism. And then Rob Bell's book came out in two thousand and eleven. Love Wins. And that showed me that there was a popular constituency for universalism. And what's interesting about the book, too, is it came out in 2018, but it's gotten a lot of attention just as of the last couple of months. That's October, November 2019, because David Bentley Hart's book, That All Shall Be Saved, came out with Yale University Press. And so a lot of people who already know of Hart and he's got a following of his own, they're comparing his book with mine. And there's debate going on back and forth between us.
1: Yeah. And so you reviewed each other.
2: Well, I reviewed his book, and he wrote a 4,000 word response the same day.
1: (laughs) Oh my. Well,
2: maybe it had been written in advance, but I was at a conference on Jonathan Edwards at Yale and people were running up to me and said, did you read what David Bentley Hart wrote? And let's just say that he went even beyond his usual level of uh, vituperation and execration.
1: <laughs> those are two words that have not often been heard on office hours, <laughs> vituperation and execration. So there you go, listener. You have your work cut out for you. I'll leave you to find your dictionary and to find out what those things mean. So, why the heat associated with this? And even maybe we should back up and say, what are we talking about when we say the word universal salvation or the shorthand universalism? What does that mean?
2: Okay. Well, as to why this matters, I mean, first of all, I think it's the ultimate theological question the question of the final scope of salvation. What could be more important than that? And in in 2 Corinthians, Paul says that, you know, an eternal weight of glory, you know, far outweighs uh, the momentary light affliction. And so scripture looks at the events of this life in light of eternity. So I think it's an intrinsically important issue. I found in my research that there's just this immense increase in interest in the doctrine of universal salvation in the last 20 years. And it seems only to have been increasing in the last uh, half decade or so. So universalism, I mean, simply means that all creatures, all intelligent creatures, without exception, will finally be saved. So it's an affirmation about the final destination. There are many different types of universalism because there are different paths that could lead to that destination. In my book, I'm not really engaged with inclusivism. Inclusivism is the notion that it may be possible to respond positively to Christ and to receive final salvation without actually having heard the name of Christ. And I think there's a legitimate place for Christians to debate that issue. But universalism is a much stronger claim because it claims that all without exception will, will finally be saved.
1: And the antithesis of that is what? I assume particularism.
2: Particularism would be the proper, some use the term dualism, because there's heaven and hell in the final picture that we have at the end of the New Testament. But dualism is a, that's a word with some negative connotations. So I think particularism is more apt.
1: It seems pejorative. Yes. Because right? it's a loaded word with a lot of history. D- dualism, like yeah. I mean, Yes. So why is universalism so popular and why do Americans in particular seem to resonate with it? Are there cultural impulses that lead Americans to want to embrace universalism?
2: Oh, I think definitely there are cultural influences present right now. And for those who are interested, I have an article available online at First Things Journal. It's called Opiate of the Theologians. You know, I wrote a work of 540,000 words, and I'm not much of a wordsmith, but I did come up with one line, and that's the a line. And I told people before it's published, this is what they're going to quote. I said, universalism is the opiate of the theologians. And what I meant by that is that universalism is really the way that we would like the world to be. We would like to live in a world where everyone receives the glad news gladly, and there's a positive response. So I I say in the online article at First Things that universalism is the gospel story frozen at the moment of the triumphal entry. Everyone is applauding, and this is what we'd like to... Believe, But, of course, perfect love came into history, and his name was Jesus, and he was crucified. And John 3, we read that everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. So there's a lot in Scripture to wean us away from the sort of overly sentimentalized view of Jesus and of God's love generally. But we live in a culture, I think, of make-believe in many ways. We live in a culture in which people want to avoid maybe the hard sharp edges of gospel truth. And so universalism is also a way that someone can still think of themselves and call themselves Christian, but they don't have to be offensive to anyone. So if I'm a universalist Christian, my Hindu friend may ask me point
0: blank, do I need to believe in Jesus? And I can say, no, no, you'll be okay. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
1: Yeah, that's kind of where I was going. The Enlightenment really he is fundamentally a universalist religion in some ways, don't you think?
2: Well, yes. I mean, the first real move of you know, modern theology, some would go back to some of the rationalists of the Reformation era. I know that's your area of specialization, so Sinus and some of the others. But really the deist controversy in the 1690s really launches a kind of a modern – Era in theology. A lot of people trace it back to Schleiermacher in Germany, but actually more than a century earlier, you have Diaz saying that whatever needs to be known about God has to be universally accessible to everyone. Mm-hmm. And um, therefore, we need to reevaluate this whole idea of special revelation and say that general revelation has to be adequate to bring a knowledge of God's will and of uh, salvation.
1: And this impulse is not particularly new, right? This has roots that go back quite a long ways in the Christian tradition. Is that true? Yes,
2: yes, that's right.
1: So. Give us a sketch of maybe where some of those impulses come from. For example, where would you see the root of it in the Christian tradition?
2: Well, I wanted to find who were the first people ever in any religious context to affirm universal salvation. The first datable reference that I could find in my research, and I looked long and hard, is in Irenaeus' Against Heresies. And it's in the about 160 to 170 A.D. And it's a reference to the Carpocratians. Now, they had a doctrine of like multiple lives, multiple reincarnations, that everyone would go through one life after another until everyone had paid the last cent. That's a reference to a verse in Matthew chapter 5. But the idea is that everyone ultimately comes to the realization of the truth. And then the statement is, and thus all souls will be saved. So that's clear. Some of our Gnostic literature from Nag Hammadi, we don't know exactly when it was written, but this we can date fairly accurately. And it's an undoubted reference to universal salvation. And it's also before the church father, Origen, who lived from about 180 to about 250. And so it's significant because it shows that universalism existed prior to Origen's writing.
1: So this is not necessarily an absolutely uniquely modern impulse. This has roots in very early yes. sects that broke away from... Christian Orthodoxy.
2: Right. Well, and Origen is a kind of odd and ambiguous figure because he's acknowledged as one of the key figures in the history of Christian exegesis. Mm -hmm. He worked on getting the Hebrew text of the Old Testament, getting an accurate Hebrew text, the hexapla, and he's known for his contributions in a number of different areas of theology. But Origen, in his book called *Peri Archon, or On First Principles, quite clearly did state that there was a basis for believing that everyone will be saved. And he even went so far as to suggest that in one passage, that even Lucifer will be saved. And that created a huge backlash in the early church. So then the the Fifth Ecumenical Council in 553 A.D. condemned Origenism, and there's some debate over what exactly was included there. But Origen is condemned by name at that council. So the attitude toward Origen was always ambivalent through many centuries. That On the one hand, he was recognized for having made positive theological contributions, but he was always regarded to as dangerously speculative. And what's happened in the last 20 to 30 years is that there's some scholars of early Christianity that are putting Origen at the center, saying, no, not Augustine. Origen is the key figure. And so it's a total, uh, like a a table-turning or upsetting of the traditional valuation of the early church fathers.
1: Yeah, it's interesting that you say that, because when I started teaching historical theology, one of the first things I had to do was to lead a seminar on Origen. And the secondary literature was fascinating, because it wasn't at all what I expected to find. Right. So in... um, the late 90s, early 2000s, as I came to the literature, coming you know not only from the states but also from France and particularly from France, the attitude towards origin was much more positive. And as you say, the whole narrative had been flipped, and that Origen is a or the central figure, and he's not the heretic of uh, you know condemned in the sixth century. Uh, he's a misunderstood genius.
2: Yes, there's a scholar named Alaria Ramelli, and if anyone looks under my name, they'll find our names associated because we've been debating. She and Robin Perry, who's a British universalist, are writing a three-volume refutation of my two volumes. <laughs> <laughs> and they have appendices on Michael mccliman 's views, and so it's all okay. specifically very much in reaction to my work. But Ramelli goes so far as to say that Origen was never condemned at the Fifth Ecumenical Council. His name is an interpolation into the official acts, like how would she know this? Yeah. It isn't like she dug up a text in which his name wasn't present. Sure. This but, is an so inference. So you'd have
1: something to compare. Right. Or you could judge and say, well, th- no, this text is older and this text is later. It's like
2: someone saying, you know, George Washington really wasn't elected. You know, what wasn't the first president of the U.S.? <laughs> like, you know, some other person you've never heard of. I mean, it's like it's so far off that it's hard to believe that the claim is being made and not only being made, but taken seriously in scholarly circles.
1: So that raises the question, how could there be a context in which long-received historical understandings are able to be apparently plausibly in some circles overturned so that origin becomes the hero and universalism becomes the norm? What in the world is going on, Dr. McClendon?
2: Well, you know, I'm tempted to use a political analogy. You know, communism really wasn't all that bad. Now, if you follow the recent literature, yeah, communism has been misunderstood. Joseph Stalin, for some today, wasn't really the horrible, murderous dictator at all. So the culture of revisionism seems to be with us.
1: And revisionism done by people who may or may not be in possession of all of the facts. Right. One fact, for example, with which somebody would have to wrestle if you're trying to revise the story about Stalin is the death of 20 to 30 million Kulaks. Yes. Right? That would be a fact. And so if you're going to tell the story that communism was a great benefit to the world, you'd have to account for the untold millions of people who disappeared under Mao. You'd have to deal with uh, Pol Pot and, right. and the million people that disappeared in Vietnam and on and on. Right. Some people have speculated, you know, I once said something in public about 80 million people and people came back to me and remonstrated with me and said, no, your number is far too low.
2: Right. The Black Book of Communism says about 100 million. Yeah. And this is written by French leftists who are taking account of the. So what's happening in the Christian world? There's immense pressure against the idea of particularity regarding Jesus, the particularity of God's salvific work in ancient Israel. You know, there was a recent uh, interview that uh, Ben Shapiro, an Orthodox Jew who is a conservative columnist and campus speaker, did an interview with uh, Bishop Robert Barron, who's a well-known Catholic spokesperson. And Ben Shapiro, to his credit, he just asked a point-blank question. You know, he said, Bishop, do I need to believe in Jesus and follow him? And Barron's response, he said, well, Christ, according to the teaching of the church, meaning the Catholic church, he said Christ is the privileged root To salvation. And there was a pushback afterward from some conservative Catholics saying, you know, you didn't tell him that he did need to believe in Jesus. Well,
1: I mean, Jesus did say, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Right. That's a hard verse to make go away.
2: Yeah. And Bishop Barron knows that verse, he's theologically very conversant, yeah. but I think we all understand why someone sitting in a hot seat at that moment would fudge a little bit, kind of a failure of nerve. And so I think there's just a lot of pressure that Christians are feeling right now not to press the particularity of Christ and of salvation that God in bringing salvation, chose to become incarnate in one man in a particular time and to call people to a response of faith toward him.
1: Don't you think this really gets to the scandal of the cross in some ways?
2: Oh, I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, I was teaching a group of about 50 to 60, um, did a series of lectures on universalism, and actually the book was not out at that point, and these were all pastors, they were all practitioners, and I gave them the question of developing a pastoral response to the emerging universalism In the culture and in many of the pews of the churches, many church members are either avowed universalists or being drawn that way. And what they came back with was ultimately what I discovered independently, which is to preach the cross. Because if you preach the cross properly and truly, you are affirming God's love for humanity. This is the actuating motive of the redemptive plan, for God so loved the world. It doesn't begin by saying, for God so hated sin. It's love is the actuating motive. But love fulfills the demands of justice. And so in the vertical and the crossbar of the cross, you have, so to speak, the love of God and the justice of God, both exemplified. And I think, honestly, if the cross is preached in its fullness and integrity, that many other theological issues will begin to take care of themselves, and people won't be drawn into universalism. I never dreamed that there would ever be a crisis on the doctrine of justification among evangelicals since that's what's defined our faith historically. All evangelicals have embraced historically the doctrine of justification by faith alone until now.
1: R.C. Sproul for Westminster Seminary, California.
2: This is the first time in history that I know of professing evangelicals have negotiated that doctrine by entering into unholy alliances with people who categorically... Rejected, but that's one of the things I love about Westminster Seminary. This is one of the few seminaries in this country that is acutely conscious of this crisis and is zealous to maintain
0: the central importance and essential truth of justification by faith alone. People are always asking me where to go. My favorite seminary in the United States, in the whole United States, is Westminster. Westminster Seminary California, W S C A L dot E D U, eight 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 four eight zero. 8474. Westminster Seminary, California for Christ, his gospel, and his church.
1: You're listening to Office Hours and we're talking with Dr. Michael J. McClymond about his twenty eighteen book, The Devil's Redemption: A New History and Interpretation of Christian Universalism. The pressure, as you say, is immense to go along to affirm some kind of universalism. And I'm going to come to a question here in just a second. And I say this as one who started his religious life as a preteen and early teen in the Universalist Unitarian Association. So I was one at age 11, 12 or so, 13. The assumption was that all reasonable people are universalists and fundamentally all religions are essentially the same and enlightened people know that and the unenlightened think that their religion is true In particular. So, and here's the question, why is that assumption so pervasive? And how do you think Christians ought to respond to it? Obviously, you're responding to it in part by telling the history of universalism.
2: Well, I think part of that has to flow from a sense in contemporary culture that what the Bible calls sin is not really that serious. Mm. If sin is not that serious, then... What Christ offers is a kind of added or supplemental dimension, benefit. Then the message ultimately is everyone is okay, but you could be a little bit more okay, you know, if you're following after Jesus. If you understand that sin is a radical disruption in the relationship of God with his creatures, as it were a tear in the fabric of the universe that punctures reality, then we begin to understand why God's responds in opposition to sin, why judgment is a reality for those whose sin has not been dealt with. And then we begin to understand why this terrible, horrific, bloody death of the Son of God becomes necessary. In the Gospel narrative, we can go back to Gethsemane, that the holy, spotless, sinless Son of God prayed that the cup of suffering would pass him by, but it did not. So that shows us very clearly that his death was necessary and that it was a costly death. So, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer did that wonderful book on the cost of discipleship in which he distinguished cheap grace from costly grace. Cheap grace, he said, is the grace we give ourselves, which we say sin is not really that bad. It's not that serious. We have a culture of cheap grace, I think. Costly grace insists that although salvation costs a sinner nothing, it costs Christ everything. And it's interesting because you mentioned the universalist church. A lot of people are not aware that there was a church body in the 19th century called the universalist church. It was the sixth largest church in the USA in the 1850s. And the very first domino to fall after universalism had been added to these other evangelical doctrines because the universalists initially were very evangelical, very biblically minded. But the first domino was the doctrine of atonement because Hosea Ballou, the theological leader of the universalist church, said, well... God is not a punishing God. He doesn't punish in hell. And therefore, Jesus was not punished on the cross. There was no debt or penalty for sin that was paid there. And of course, once you give up atonement theology in that sense, then Jesus doesn't have to be divine any longer. He can just be a moral teacher. So ultimately, the universalist church was set on a path to merging with the Unitarians. And someone wanted to describe the connection and distinction between them. He said, well, the Universalists believe that God is too good to damn them, and the Unitarians believe that they are too good to be damned.
1: Well, yeah, my experience tells me there's truth in that assessment because that was the spirit of at least some of what I heard when I was in the UUA before I became an evangelical uh, and then finally confessing the Reformed faith. One of the interesting things that you and I were discussing before we went on air is the section of your work. This is, I guess, Section 5 or Chapter 5 titled, In Yes... And no, all things consist, the theosophic world of Jakob boom and the Boomists of Germany, England, America, France, and Russia. And the reason I ask is you mentioned the evangelical adoption of universalism, and I suspect it might have something to do with fellows like Jakob Boom. So can you tell us a little bit about who he is and why people would want to know something about the theosophic world?
2: Sure. Well, this is hard to discuss briefly, but Verma was not a traditional academic or writer. He was a cobbler. People call him the mystical cobbler. In the year 1600, he had a mystical experience in which he saw sunlight reflecting off the surface of a pewter dish in a house. And he said that that one moment gave him a inner awareness of all reality. That's nice. <laughs> He even went he even went so far as to say I found in one of his writings he said, you know, when Moses wrote in Genesis about the creation of the world, it was only hearsay. He only got that second and he said, I actually witnessed it. Oh
1: interesting.
2: So he was not known for humility. You might yeah, say he yeah. believed that he had been vouchsafed this special vision. And it's a very strange theology because God is not the ultimate principle. The ultimate principle is what Burma called the ungrund, which is this howling, raging chaotic nothingness. And so if you wanted to explain this in terms of the language of Genesis, you would have to change the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning was waste and emptiness, and the waste and emptiness said, let there be God. So there's something more ultimate than God. But the key thing in Burma is this notion of an evolving God. God creates the world as his body, and he's sort of the spirit inhabiting the body, but God needs the world to realize himself. And then at the end of the world process, God is changed. He's altered from what he was at the beginning. And so this evolutionary idea of God, you can find this in contemporary theologians like Jürgen Moltmann. Yep. Some of the canonic relational theology,
1: theologians. Thank you so much for saying that. That bell is reserved for special moments. I taught the doctrine of God for a number of years, and I said to them, you know, look, I don't know a great deal about this. Most of what I know about the doctrine of God I learned from the Athanasian Creed. But I can tell you there's a difference between the traditional doctrine of God and the modern, and that is in the modern doctrine of God, he's becoming. Yes. And in the traditional doctrine of God, he just is, right? Right. So – I'm so glad you said that because sometimes my students look at me like, what are you talking about?
0: You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California.
2: Well, and people think it's only the process theologians that believe God is is in process. No, it's
1: all throughout.
2: And Hegel and Schelling, these German idealist philosophers, they bequeathed that to the whole 20th century, particularly German language theology. Not all of our German brothers and sisters writing theology, but many of them are influenced by this.
1: So this gets me back to the evangelicals, which is a source of fascination for me. Because in the 19th century, evangelicals begin to absorb some of these ideas from people like Buma and via how, pietism or where do they get this? Here's why I ask. Recently, I was in a large evangelical congregation that would be recognizable—not the congregation, but what went on in the service would be recognizable to Americans in evangelical congregations and maybe Christians in other places as well. And the real focus of the whole service was therapy. Mm -hmm, It was not an announcement of a divine word of law and gospel, of redemption accomplished outside of us and given to us. It was ostensibly a conservative religious service an evangelical service but we were very much at the center of the whole thing and the point of it was that we should feel better at the end of it and i was struck how otherwise very conservative you know sensible people could have traded in traditional christian teaching for a therapeutic religion and to be totally unaware of it
2: I couldn't agree more. I think that you put your finger on the key idea, which is the self, the human self at the center. As someone writing about ancient Gnosticism, they said it's not about theophany, God's revelation of himself. It's about egophany, mm. the ego coming sure. to a realization. Suddenly, I realized who I am, who I've always been. And actually, you can find contemporary authors that describe themselves as evangelical or charismatic, moving that were biblically based, and they're saying That the human self is eternal. You are eternal. You are always there with some aspect of you, always with God. Like now you're in your earthly manifestation, but you're returning from where you came. Well, that's the Gnostic story. That's not a biblical story at all.
1: As you were saying, people are always, whether it's the Gnostics or Boom, wanting to reverse the biblical order. Right. I mean, isn't that fundamentally yeah. what the Gnostics do?
2: Right. Francois Toit, who has done some writing and defending universalism, I discuss him in my book. He goes back to Luke 15. There's a the story of the prodigal son, the lost son, but there's the lost coin and the lost sheep. And his phrase is the lost coin never lost its value. And the fact that Jesus died is a sign of how infinitely precious you are, and I am. Until so the whole thing is reversed. It's not a message about the extent of God's love, but how <laughs> yeah. wonderful we are. And then suddenly you're getting this exposition of this self-oriented philosophy.
1: Robert Schuller wins.
2: Yeah. And, you know, Paul Witts, who at one point taught psychology at Stanford, he did a fine book. It's not as well known as it should be. It's called Psychology as Religion, the Cult of Mm -hmm. Self-Worship. And so if you read that book, you can understand that what we're seeing are kind of religious or spiritual versions of a self-oriented psychology.
1: Philip Reif, right? Right. The Rise of Narcissism. Yes. So we're really being swamped with egoism, solipsism, subjectivism, narcissism lots of isms. So what will become of particular ism, which is right at the heart of the Christian message, right? Don't we want to announce to the world, Jesus died to accomplish salvation. And if you're in Christ, then there is a certain hope of final salvation. And if you're outside of Christ, you lack that hope. Do you think we can still say that? And if so, what should we expect when we do?
2: Well, I think, uh, you know, I don't often quote Nietzsche favorably, but Nietzsche <laughs> talked about, and Eugene Peterson, a Christian author, picked this up, a long obedience in the same direction. We're called to be radically faithful, to cling to the flesh and blood Jesus. I call him the Jesus with dirt under his fingernails. This new book, you know, Richard Rohr, we haven't gotten into that, but this book, Universal Christ, which is the number one book on Christ at Amazon for the last six months. He says we need to give up the human historical Jesus completely and just follow after the Universal Christ, the book is being promoted by Oprah Winfrey. So no, the church is called to be, maybe in this context, cultural context, a resistance movement. And we have to think, you know, I read Rod Dreher's blog and benedict option i think we need to think almost like what about those political dissenters who lived under communist regimes they sustain one another by meeting together by reading some of the same books talking developing networks among themselves it may not be immediately it may not be within this next generation maybe we have to be thinking further ahead two to three generations
0: who may need to be resisting some of the cultural currents and religious currents that are affecting us right now thanks for listening to office hours from westminster seminary california Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.